Hello. Thank you for downloading this Downtown Hope Sermon Podcast. We're a faith-based community in the city of Annapolis, Maryland, orienting our lives around Jesus and exist to see the people of our city, region, and world thrive with the hope found in his gospel. Now, please enjoy the Sermon Podcast. Deep in our human condition, there is a cry for justice. Psalm 17, one says, hear my just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry, hear, give ear to my prayer. If you've been watching the news this last week, we all probably had the chance to see this horrendous video on the border of a two-year-old and a five-year-old sister's young girls being thrown over the border wall and left by themselves over a 14-foot fence. It's heartbreaking. We see that video, regardless of where you stand, maybe on the political spectrum, you're like, two young girls should not be thrown over a 14-foot fence and left by themselves. It's wrong. Their bodies could have been severely injured. Them being abandoned is wrong. They were left offended for themselves in the wilderness. Being left in a desolate place was wrong. It was highly unlikely they would have been found. Thank God that um, there were some uh, border patrols that had seen them and were able to get to them in time. And so when, when, when two children like that are, are, are heaved over a wall or just what happened in one of our neighborhoods this last week, Woodside Gardens, one of the neighborhoods we've been involved in for many years when four men emerged from the woods and started spraying bullets across the, the neighborhood. Thank God nobody was hit by a bullet. We say... This is not just. There's a cry for justice in our hearts. When we see the news and when a drop of human blood is inserted into a shoe, when someone is cheated on or robbed or ridiculed or bullied, when we lose someone we love dearly too soon, there's a cry in our heart for justice. And in the middle of preparing for this message, I just put together a little piece of prose that I want to read that I think gives some words, a little poetry to this cry for justice. A a cry for justice runs deep in our bones. We find it in the moral arc of the cosmos. And we all know it. We've just become confused by what we mean by it. It is, something, is it something that proceeds from our emotions or is it something that transcends our individual notions? Is morality something we cook up internally or something that was fed to us from eternity? And when we sense, when a sense of justice rises up in us, we say someone, somewhere must pay. We say pay Because the way to restore equilibrium, to bring things back to right again, to straighten the crooked crooked bar is to bang, a resource exerted or paid, to make corrupted ways sane. To regain order, there is a cost. Someone has to pick up the trash on the floor, has to hammer the nails in the door, has to pay for gas to go after the sojourner. And without payment for what has been lost... Our blood boils, our heart murmurs, our head thinks it is not right. For justice demands 
that anything impure be removed, lest there be a nail in the bottom of your shoe or pulp in the juice, a block in the view, a stain on the garment that was supposed to be brand new. Is this news to you? You know it when you go to choose a piece of fruit and there's a bruise. Or that time you lifted up his shirt to see the welt that his father dealt after he had had a few. Justice cries out to you, but are you listening? And here begs our 21st century question, one of mediation. How does justice get satisfied when it seems we have no rules? Or a law of your making decide based on a feeling inside of you. So if it seems good for you, then do it. But here's the problem with it. What happens when that thing that is good for you is the thing that causes someone else to lose their dignity or their very life? The loss of rules means more injustice. So justice cries out to you, but are you listening? How desperate we are for peace, and therefore the demand for justice is necessary, but something in our inconsistency and sin we can't seem to bury. We say, peace, 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 as the day is long, while the world is on fire and people throw gasoline on. Without justice, there is no peace. What is injustice? It's a violation, it's a wrong. And when we say something is unjust, we're acknowledging that there is a moral arc to the universe, but that something has gone terribly wrong. The violation of that moral arc is what the scripture and what a follower of Jesus calls sin. Sin is any act or motive that runs counter to the ethical grain of God's universe as revealed through his word. And sin is the culprit that lies underneath every injustice, whether directly or indirectly. And in the echo of the world's justice cry, we discover an acknowledgement of the reality of sin. That's the world we find ourselves in right now. Deep cries for justice but oftentimes complete obliviousness to what is driving the injustice in the world. And if you have subscribed to a worldview that says there really isn't anything we can definitively call sin, take note of the cry for justice in your heart. You want peace, but you don't want to acknowledge there's any kind of ethical grounding you can't have it both ways. No acknowledgement of sin. There can be no real peace. And we can debate particular sins, but the cry in the human heart for justice is an acknowledgement of the reality of sin. So how is the problem on a night like tonight, as we've been meditating on these passages from the Old Testament and the New Testament, the accounts of Christ laying his life down, offering himself in love. How does the problem, how is the problem of sin dealt with? And the answer, and answers our cry 
for justice? How do we deal with injustice? Well, most of us, when we experience injustice, we, we usually respond in one of three different ways. We try to atone for it ourselves. We work as hard as we possibly can to make the wrong right. We exert as much strength as humanly possible, which if you've tried to do that is utterly exhausting. Anybody with me on that? The second option that many of us tend to do is we just ignore it. We're just like, it's overwhelming. I don't even want to acknowledge that that is a problem or that injustice is in the world, and so I'm just going to ignore it altogether. Or, tragically, many of us fall into despair. How do you answer the question of injustice? And this leads us to what brings us together this evening It is the definitive event where we discover God's response to our cry for justice and the sin that lurks beneath every injustice. The cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus' death on the cross and so, so, so what is actually unfolding on the cross that treats every injustice and the sin lurking beneath? I mean, that's a question maybe you've considered, maybe you haven't considered. You probably, if you've grown up in a Western American culture, you've heard Jesus died on the cross for my sins. But what actually does that mean? Because it's so easy for that to go in one ear and out the other. It's so easy to just kind of go through the motions. What is actually transpiring on the cross? And what does it have to do with God treating and dealing with the injustices of the world and the sin that lies underneath. We say Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I mean, was his act a suffering act? Did he physically, being fully human, suffer in his body? Absolutely. The imagery is brutal. I mean, if you've ever seen the film, The Passion of the Christ, I mean, it, it draws that out in intense ways. He suffered significantly in his body, no doubt. Was it an act of love? Absolutely. Jesus' love was a sacrifice, a sacrifice of love for humanity. It was, there was a deep love poured out. We just, we've sung about that. Romans 5.8, you know, Jesus laid down his life for us even while we were still sinners. But both of these things rest upon what is actually happening on the cross that speaks to the cry for justice in our world. And we find it here, we're just going to focus in on verse 44 to 46 here. You can just open your Bibles with me. Colin read the entire crucifixion account, sort of gives us a little backdrop. And I want to draw our attention right here to verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, that's noon, that's high noon, And interestingly enough, something is happening at high noon on this day. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. So here we have this picture. Jesus is on the cross and the entire world goes dark for three hours. Now, now, the Greek word used here by Luke is the word where we get the word in English, eclipse. And so there's been a lot of debate over the years, was this an actual eclipse or not? We know it actually wasn't an eclipse because it was during Passover, and Passover is based on the full moon. So this wasn't an eclipse that happened, but you can imagine Luke doesn't really have another word for this. The, the best thing he knows to describe it is the sun went dark. How that happened, we don't know. 
but we know it happened. The gospel writers account for it, and they speak to it, and there is a significance behind the light going off. Now, when we think about God in the scripture, when we think about his presence, we often think about light, and light is absolutely part of how God makes himself known in the world. God is light. We have scripture and passages you know, fueled throughout the scriptures of, of describing God in that way. But what is less popular or what is less known is that God's presence is also associated with darkness. Now, don't think darkness like demonic or dark activity. Think about God as being the one who is creator, Lord uh, over all light and darkness who created these things, and so he has authority over them. And so he comes in light, but he also comes, at times his presence comes, and he makes his presence known through darkness. So Amos 8, 8, 9, for example, says, I will make the sun go down at noon. Speaking, by the way, of this very moment, dark in broad daylight. Joel 1.15, alas for the day. And by the way, these prophets are speaking of what is called through scripture, the day of the Lord. Here's what Joel says. The sun and the moon will go dark and the Lord will utter his voice. Joel 2.30, wonders in the sky and earth, blood, fire, sun to darkness. Amos 5.20, the day of the Lord will be darkness, not light. And then we start to get a window into what is happening with this rich symbolism of God's presence coming through this moment of darkness. The day of the Lord will come with this word, again, that we talk about often, that in our cultures, oftentimes there's an allergy toward, it's the word wrath. And we're not talking about the word wrath in the sense of somebody who is out of their mind, angry and uncontrollable, sinful. We're talking about a right or a righteous or a just anger against wrongdoing and injustice. So this is where God in Exodus 10, if you remember this, tells Moses to lift up his hand to the sky to bring a plague of what? Darkness over the land for three days. Exodus 19, there's a, God comes in a thick cloud. He descends with fire on him. The whole mountain is quaking violently. There's smoke. Uh, Isaiah 5, 20, smoke, cloud, darkness. These are some of the ways that God has to make his presence known to the world, to his human creatures, because sometimes we don't always get the message. We don't always realize what he wants to speak to us and say to us. Perhaps one of the most powerful examples of this that foreshadows the cross is Genesis 15, where Abraham is, is put, in, put down into a dream and God comes and he walks through these pieces and he makes a covenant with Abram and it says, terror and great darkness came. And so darkness in the scripture is actually a sign of God's justice being unleashed. And the question for us tonight is what on the cross is God's justice being unleashed upon? What should have happened to the people who threw two young girls over a 14-foot wall and left them stranded? They should have been arrested. They should have received a consequence for their wrongdoing. They should have received justice. They should have been brought to justice, is how we say it. But they got away with it as far as we know. And we say, 
then, that is not just. That's an injustice. They should pay for the trauma or the hurt that they caused. And so consequence or payment is justice is is the natural response to sin. It's the right response to sin. And so what is God in the darkness as he comes here in verse 44 as high noon, everything goes dark, God's presence comes. And you would think in that moment, maybe, you know, we read verse, part of verse 23 here, maybe his justice should come down upon the Romans who are carrying out this unjust execution of Jesus. Maybe, maybe his justice should come down um, upon the Jews who are sort of passive in this whole process and sort of incited the whole thing. People just standing by and watching. I mean, maybe God's justice should have come down on all of them. But instead we find the most peculiar thing. It's the thing that sets apart what, what, what the scripture calls the gospel. The story that God is unfolding through his story of scripture. What we find is actually God's justice is coming down, bearing down upon his son. How does God bring justice to the injustices of the world and the sin underneath? The answer is so crystal clear in the cross. He brings the punishment and the justice that you deserve and I deserve for the sin in our lives and he places it upon his son. It's not that Jesus just died on the cross for your sins and my sins. It's that he received in that moment the justice that you and I deserve for our sins. One pastor says it this way, infinite wrath moved by infinite righteousness releases infinite punishment on the infinite son who can alone absorb an eternal hell for all those who would believe the cross is the ultimate act of justice. God himself paying for all the injustices of the world. God, who created everything, takes the punishment for you and for me. That is astonishing. That you, you don't make that kind of thing up. In legends, the gods try their best to get the burden off of their shoulders and put it on the people. But not this God. This God sees us in the depths of our sin, the depths of our struggle, all of the injustices of the world. And he says, I will pay for it. I will pay for it through the cross. And then what is uncovered, what is discovered is the most incredible news. Second part of verse 45, directly after everything goes dark, the lights come back on and we find the curtain of the temple is torn in two. The direct result of Jesus absorbing 
the right anger, the right punishment for our sin is that something in the temple happens. What happens in the temple? What does it mean that the temple's veil or the curtain is ripped in two, is torn in two, as Jesus' body is being ripped apart? We find then the temple veil is ripped wide open. Now, what is happening in this moment? This is right as the priests are preparing the lambs for slaughter. Right as they're getting ready for Passover. Remember Passover from the nation of Israel as they were brought out of Egypt. And the temple curtain is torn in two. That is to say, the holiest place that separated God's people from his very presence is opened up and made available. What this means if the symbolism is that access to God has been granted. Access to God has been opened up. The cross effectively achieved the equilibrium, the, the, the thing that our hearts were longing for. God is taking in this moment everything crooked and he's completely straightening it out. In order, we might say, for there to be a new creation, for there to be new life, for there to be resurrection, the thing that we are going to celebrate together on Sunday, there first has to be a reckoning, a straightening, a reordering, and that is what is happening through the cross, making a way for all of humanity, as broken and sinful as all of us are, to be re-ushered into the presence of God and the injustices of the world are dealt with, and the sin that lies under all the injustices of the world are dealt with through the cross. Colossians 1 says it this way, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, speaking of Jesus, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and listen to this, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It is a cosmic offering that happens on the cross. The cross produces access to God and we are offered forgiveness and the cry for justice is answered and the world aching under sin and its effects is offered hope and forgiveness, a future Part of why we long for justice is because deep down we know the blood of injustice on our own hands, every single one of us. And so the question is, how do we respond to this? We see God pouring out his right justice upon Jesus. We see the temple being torn. We see the opening for God's love to break forth into our lives, for us to be forgiven, to, for us to have access and reconnection with our Heavenly Father. And what is our response? And we read it. I love how Colin prayed it. Verse 48, And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle went, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. This is the proper response to the cross. When we start to understand, not just with our minds, but with our hearts, with the, the fullness of who we are, what is actually taking place on the cross. There is only one response. I mean, you can respond other ways, but there's only one appropriate response. It is humility. This is what 
them beating their breast is all about. It's a sign of grief. It's a sign of repentance. And that is the call of the cross that we meditate on on a night like tonight. Repent and believe. And this is so critical because some of us have been through an experience like Jesus was experiencing on the cross. We've been through a good Friday, as it were. Maybe this entire last year for you has been a good Friday. The thing that we can cling to in this moment and the thing that comes to us through the cross is that Christ will hold us fast. No matter what you face, no matter what I face, no matter what hardship or injustice we face, we look to the cross and we see that injustice has been dealt with. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He will hold us fast. He will hold you fast in whatever you are facing. This is why in Revelation 5, 11 through 14, we see another picture of this response. Then I looked up and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. And here's what they're saying in a loud voice. Listen to what the cry in heaven is because of the cross. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And it goes on to say, the four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down, and they worshiped. Because that is what the cross produces in us. Utter humility, a willingness to say, I am a sinner through and through. I struggle so deeply with inconsistencies in my life. I struggle so deeply with sinning against my wife or my children or my neighbors or my friends or our team here. And yet, I look at the cross and I'm so thankful that the justice that I deserve did not come down upon me. I love this, the words of the song that we're gonna sing here in a moment. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. For my life he bled and died, Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied, he will hold me fast. Let's pray.